This morning I'll be reading 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, through 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, hi, my name is Dana. I'm one of the pastors at City Life Presbyterian Church just across the river. Um, and it's so good to be with all of you this morning. Thank you to uh, many of you who I got to meet uh, before service has started. Um, you were so warm and welcoming. And yeah, really, it, it's a blessing to be part of the spiritual community here in our city uh, to worship together. Um, CTK actually has a very spe- special place in my heart. Uh, April, exactly 10 years ago at Presbytery, uh, this is when I came under care, uh, responded to a call to ministry right here in the sanctuary. I remember Troy Albee at, um, at Grace South Shore uh, gave us a charge, and um, yeah, full circle 10 years later, it's, it's a real privilege for me to be here with you all, uh, to be spending time in God's Word, so thanks for having me. Uh, I wish I didn't have to be up there. The kids' sermon was so great. I think that really covered everything that I wanted to talk about today, but we'll spend a little bit more time diving into this passage. But before we do so, if you'll please pray with me. Uh, Gracious God, we thank you for this word, that you are our Father and we are your children. Uh, Would you help us Uh, to not only know this, uh, but to experience that this morning as we worship. Pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, In 2008, uh, there was a New York Times interview uh, with esteemed novelist Amy Tan. Uh, Many of you may have uh, be familiar with her work, uh, perhaps the the book The Joy Luck Club. Uh, But in one of her books, she writes about uh, the story of an anxious American woman and her overbearing mother. Maybe this will be familiar with some of you. Uh, During the interview, she describes her own experience growing up with a mom uh, who expected a lot from her. And listen to what she says. She says, I had a very demanding mother. I thought I disappointed her in every single way. This microphone's distracted. I realize I don't need this microphone. Um, I had a very demanding mother. I, I thought I disappointed her in every single way. She wanted me to be a concert pianist, and that would be on the weekends. My day job would be a brain surgeon. (laughs) Later on, she tells the interviewer about a conversation uh, that she has with her mother. She says, when I was on the New York Times bestseller list, I came in at number four. I told my mother, and she said, what happened? (laughs) Who's number three? Who's number two? Who's number one? You know, does that sound familiar to some of you this morning? You know, most of us have spent our entire adult lives 
trying to live up to someone ex- uh, else's expectations of us. And no matter how much time and energy we invest, uh, we always find ourselves not doing enough. And we all know that critical voice. It could be the voice of our parents, our bosses, our peers, our spouses, or our friends. And it's a voice that's actively at work here in our own city of Boston and Cambridge that remind us every day that we don't do enough, but also that you aren't enough or you are not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not successful enough. You're not talented enough. You're not morally good enough. And some, as the Bible sums us up, you're not worthy. So we've all heard this voice since we we're young children. We hear it every day living here in our city. And so as we come to God's words, we're invited to ask ourselves this morning, is this how we experience God when we approach him? You know, do you experience him as this critical voice in your life? As this disappointed father with his arms crossed, standing over you, disappointed at you. Or perhaps you go to church every Sunday and you hear about his love, you hear about his grace, and you become numb to it. He's supposed to be. But at least we think there's no joy in it for him. He merely tolerates us. So this morning in worship, what is your view of God as his father? And what is his view of you? Now, this is what John is actually inviting us to consider in this passage. And uh, he says, when he appears before us, uh, there's two ways uh, that we can approach him. And this is what I want us to look at this morning. Uh, The first is shrinking back in shame. And the second, uh, there's two parts, uh, beholding the Father's love, and lastly, approaching him as his children. Uh, So starting off, let's look at this idea of approaching God, shrinking back in shame. If you'll look with me at verse 28, chapter 2. And now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So John starts here in this passage by talking about Jesus' second coming. And imagine this picture. When we stand before God's judgment, when Christ comes again in the last days, uh, there's this picture that God will see each of us truly as we are. If you're familiar with the book of 1 John, early in chapter 1, he talks about walking in the light versus darkness, walking in truth versus lies. So there's this image of in the presence of God, he sees each and every single one of us as we truly are in the light. And so if Jesus were to appear right now, if he were to come back and judge us right now, how do we respond? We can either have confidence and approach him without fear or we can shrink back in shame. As we think about how would I respond, first I want to begin with this idea of what is shame? You know, we hear this word often in the Bible. uh, And what does that look like? What does that mean this morning? And uh, one of the helpful ways that I've found uh, to understand shame in the Bible is actually to, to contrast it and distinguish it from guilt. You know, it may be easy to confuse shame and guilt. We hear, the, we hear these two words uh, often together in the church. Uh, but here's one way to think about it. A guilt, uh, which we're all familiar with, which we confess every Sunday in corporate confession, looks at the wrong or damage that we have done and says, what have I done? Guilt is about what I do. It's about behavior. It's about your actions, about what I have done. But shame, on the other hand, looks in and says, who am I that I could do such a thing? 
Guilt is about what I've done. Shame is about who I am. It's about identity. And shame is always dependent on the presence of someone else watching. Uh, Neil Livingston, in his book, uh, Picturing the Gospel, tells a story about a father who was using his computer to look at pornography. And one day he left his computer on and forgot to close the browser. And later that day, his young son walks in and sees what's on the screen of his dad's computer. And Neil writes this. He said he did not just feel that he had done a wrong act. He suddenly felt exposed. Something ugly about him had just become as plain as day. To one of the last people he ever wanted to see it. He felt shame and he wished the whole house could have fallen on him to cover him up. His father knew he was guilty. He knew he could look at a sinful act and cry out, what have I done? But when his sin was brought into light, when his son saw him with his own eyes, he could only help but feel with a deep shame, who am I that I could do such a thing? Have any of you experienced this personally? You know, we all dread what this father went through. For our sin to be brought into the light and exposed for all others to see. You know, what if he or she found out? Uh, what if he or she knew the real me? You know, this is one of our greatest nightmares for both Christians and non-Christians. And all of us, uh, as humans, we avoid this at all costs. We hide behind a mask. And not literally, uh, but figuratively. We pretend, we cover up, we protect our image, we project an illusion for others to see. And all throughout Scripture, we read about how we were created for intimacy, to be known by God, to be known by others. But more often than not, we go through life uh, too scared to let others see the real us, the real me. Afraid that being vulnerable will only lead to more hurt and rejection. So it only makes sense. If we shrink back in shame when we let other people down, when we let others down, like our friends, it only makes sense that we do the same with God. So again, John is saying, if Jesus were to come back here today and were to appear before you right now, seeing all of your dirty secrets, how would you approach him? And I imagine as we enter that scene, many of us would feel probably like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you're familiar with that parable, part of the story is about this younger son who goes off to a distant country and he squanders his father's inheritance and his wealth. And eventually he ends up eating next to pigs. And if you're a Jewish reader, you know that uh, you've ro reached rock bottom when you're around unclean animals. When, he, when pig food begins to look good to him, he knows it can't get worse than this. He feels humiliated. He feels ashamed. And he's contemplating returning to his father. And he does what all of us do, does. He rehearses a little speech. And if you're familiar with this, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. We said that this morning. We say this every Sunday corporate worship. We all know that voice, and that's the voice of guilt talking. Again, guilt is associated with what we have done. Uh, but listen to what he says right after. There's another voice right beside it. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And then he goes on to say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Uh, this is the voice of shame talking. 
He's not simply saying, I've done wrong, but he's, not, he's saying, I've disqualified to be in your presence. Don't even look at me. You know, most of us go through our life with our eyes fixed on our past failures, on our sin, fixed on our shame. And most of us only go through life hearing the voice of the critics. So when we get to that place, how does John actually encourage us? How does he give us hope? How, what does he tell us to do that we can actually approach God with confidence? And this leads to our second point, uh, beholding the Father's love. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. And he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So John instructs us with this word, see. Other translations say behold or look at, uh, but the point is to fix our eyes, fix our attention, forget everything that's going around around us, and fix on this truth. Behold, look at, and see the kind of love the Father has given to us. Another translation says, behold, the kind of love the Father has lavished on us. So if you're new to the Christian faith, you're like, well, what is this kind of love that John is speaking of? Again, let's look back to the father in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the wandering son returns home to the father. He's just blown his entire father's inheritance. And if you're familiar with uh, an ancient Middle Eastern culture, uh, he's brought shame and dishonor uh, to his father's name and reputation. He's humiliated his father in front of the whole entire community. And, and many of us, even here in a Western context, know what that's like. You know, shame isn't just something we experience personally, uh, but we carry that shame over uh, to those that we love, our family and our community. You know, when I mess up and it becomes public, it doesn't just impact me, but impacts those around me. Others close to me have to suffer uh, because who I am and what I've done. And so this is what the Father has to endure. What does he do? How does he respond? And he does something that is shocking to the original audience back then. He does something that's shocking to even us as modern listeners today. As we read the story, it says, When the father sees the son at the end of the village, covered in shame, it says he pulls up his robes and he runs to him. And again, in, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, honorable owners of the state would never do this. You know, maybe children would go out and running, but never the father. So seeing a person of this stature running would have been considered shameful in the eyes of the community. And today, for an honorable man to pull up his robes, bare his skin, bare his legs, and run down the road would be similar to our day of seeing someone on Prospect Street running in their underwear to chase after their child. But this father doesn't care what others think. He's willing to be humiliated for his own son's sake. And so he runs to him, he embraces him, and the passage says he kisses him, but he doesn't stop there. The passage goes on to say that the father instructs his servants to bring out the best robe and put it on him, to bring out a ring to put it on his finger, and sandals for his feet. And again, in the ancient culture, this would have been scandalous. Why? Because all of these were symbols of sonship and honor. You know, what is the father essentially doing? Uh, in, in his book, uh, The Prodigal God, uh, the writer Tim Keller writes, the best robe in the house would have been the father's own robe, the unmistakable sign of restored standing in the family. And the father is saying, I'm not going to wait until you've paid off your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've duly groveled. You're not going to earn your way back into the family. I'm simply 
going to take you back. I will cover your nakedness, poverty, and rags with the robes of my office and honor. And listen to another commentator, right? He says, slaves did not normally wear sandals, though they carried and tied a master's sandals. The father's saying, no, I won't receive you back as a servant. I'll receive you only as a son. And you see what's happening. The younger son has this mindset that he's going to earn his way back to his father, earn back his honor, but the father have none of it. And the father will clothe him and restore his honor with his own robe. So he runs to him. He clothes him with his honor. And finally, oh, this is my favorite part. When the son returns, he throws him a party. You know, this, is one, this wasn't the norm uh, back then. It's actually not the norm for many of us here today. You know, many of you uh, have grown up uh, with a very stern and stoic father. We don't see enough today a father celebrating, delighting, uh, throwing their sons up in the air. But here we see a picture of a father who actually rejoices over a son, not only over success, his success, but especially in the midst of his failure, who celebrates and throws his son a party with the best food and drink. So let me ask you this morning, do you know this kind of father's love for you? You know, when all of us here this morning, when we feel like an utter failure and uh, if I'm honest, in the past two years, I haven't talked to a single person who hasn't felt like a failure to some degree. The failure as a spouse, failure as a parent, failure as a friend, failure as a student, failure as a pastor, a failure as a working professional. Uh, but maybe you haven't felt uh, to this degree the feeling of a failure, but you at least felt like a fraud, that you don't belong that there are people even here right now in worship, that there are things that people don't even know about you, and you're like, do I even belong here in this place? And in that moment, uh, John is encouraging each of us, see, behold, look at the Father's love for us. Look at him running to you and humiliating himself to embrace you. Look at him clothing you uh, with his honor. And look at him throwing a party and celebrating over you. Uh, but also, when someone here in your own church community comes to you and feels like a failure, and when they feel like a fraud, experiencing deep shame, what do you do? Uh, what do we do? I think here in our city, uh, and, and here in our day today, as Christians, we're all, we all know from biblical teaching that there are appropriate times to call someone out, to hold them accountable, to rebuke, to correct people when they're in their wrong. Uh, and there, there are times that the Bible does call us a whole one another accountable. Um, this is important. We need this. And uh, every week we confess because we don't want to take our sin lightly. But what if, uh, before we remind one another in the ways that we need to do better, we actually start from the very place that God starts with us? And we start by encouraging one another by saying, see, look, behold that, the Father's love for you right now and the lavish on you. If you're like me, I'm pretty good at being critical. I think everyone here in our city is. I'm good at telling others you messed up and you need to do this or that better, but I'm not good at telling others, especially in the midst of their failure, your father loves you. Uh, one uh, pastor in our, our denomination once tweeted, nearly every person you meet is insecure, overwhelmed, and under-encouraged. Consider taking some time off from telling people how disappointed you are in them. Everyone knows that they already fall short. 
We don't need to teach our children to feel shame, but we do need to teach them every day that they have a Father in heaven that loves them. You know, imagine how different our relationships in our churches would look like if we did more of the latter and less of the former. Who's someone in your life this week who's struggling uh, that needs to be reminded of this love that God has for them? You know, what what might it look like for you to encourage them? And as you've been sitting here and listening to this, uh, this is, for many of you, something you've heard your entire lives. This is a familiar gospel truth about God as Father and us as His children. The picture of a loving Father, a loving, undeserving sinner, sounds nice. Uh, But after hearing it for so many times, uh, we become numb to it. You're like, okay, God can really love some bad people. Uh, But Daniel, you don't know me, and you especially don't know those people out there. If God really knew what I have done, or if God really knew what they did, there's no way that there's space in God's heart uh, to love them. So lastly, this leads us to our last point. You know, how can we know for sure that the Father's love is actually true for us? How can we be sure that we, as John says, we can actually approach him with confidence? Uh, this leads to our last point, approaching him uh, as his children. You know, when we feel like a failure, this isn't the only place in Scripture Uh, that we're encouraged to see, to look, to behold at. Uh, But there's actually another place in the New Testament. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 2, or 12, verse 2, some of you are familiar with this passage. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes to see on Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, there's no greater symbol in the Bible of shame than a cross. There was nothing more shameful for a person in the New Testament to die a death of hanging on a cross. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, fix our eyes on on Jesus who endured the cross, despise the shame, what what are we looking at? Again, we're looking at the Father's love. He's saying, see, look at the Father's love that he would send his son uh, to die for us. But there's a new part. Don't just look at the Father's love. See the Son's love for you too. He was the only one uh, that deserved the robe, the sandals, the ring. The only one who deserved the honor and approval of his father. But on the cross, he gave it all up. Why? For you and me. As a writer of uh, Galatians, Paul says, so that you and I might receive the adoption to be called sons and daughters. Here in John, he says, so that we should be called children of God. And the promise is that when we are in Christ, we are no longer children of wrath, but we become children and sons and daughters of the living God. No longer children of shame, but recipients of his love. The Father loves the Son. And when we are in the Son, the Father loves us the same. His robes, his rings, his sandals now belong to us. So what does this mean for us? How does this change Uh, how we approach Jesus, how we approach God. Uh, And two truths, it means that uh, you can go with the same confidence uh, that Jesus did. As our brother told us earlier this morning, uh, we can go to him not just as his servants, uh, but as his sons and daughters. And this is where I want to end this morning. What does this look like? You know, on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus teaches us how to pray to God in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And this is probably one of the most astonishing statements he makes in the Gospel of Matthew. 
uh, is that he invites us to start the prayer with our Father. Uh, if you've ever uh, spent time um, uh, with other uh, Christians, I'm sorry, not Christians, um, people of other faith who believe in a monotheistic faith, uh, they will be offended by the fact that we as Christians actually call God our Father. And the disciples, they knew the intimacy that Jesus had with God the Father. They saw him pray over and over again. And they heard him say, our Father, our Father. And now he's inviting his disciples, he's inviting us to say, hey, he's your Father too. He's inviting us to share the same intimacy that Jesus has, that we would claim that too. And the point he's making is that the same access, the same intimacy is now ours as well. And that's the, the promise, the desire that Jesus wants for us to experience this privilege of calling God as our Father. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, I celebrated my son's uh, second birthday. Um, he was sitting in the back. You might have heard him uh, being the loud one uh, during the confession of sin. Uh, but my son, um, uh, when he grows up, he's going to know uh, that I have many names that people call me by. I was trying to think of some of the names. I couldn't come up, be creative, but uh, Daniel or Mr. Pack or Dan or Pastor Daniel. Uh, and different people relate to me differently, and they, they call me by these different names. Uh, so one day when he grows up, uh, sure, he can call me by any of these names. But as he grows up, I'm going to always remind him that there's one name that only one person in the entire world has access to call me. And for him, it's the name Appa. And that means uh, uh, daddy in Korean. And for us, God is saying, you don't have to call him Appa, but in Galatians 4, Paul invites us to say, God also invites us to go to him and call him Abba, Father. This is an Aramaic term that signal intimacy uh, of calling God as Abba, Father. The creator of the universe, the Lord of all heavens, the king of kings, invites you and me to call him Abba. You know, isn't it interesting that of all the sophisticated names in the Old Testament, of all the, the reverent names that God goes by, he actually gives Christians a special privilege to call him Abba, a name that even babies can pronounce. And this is the access that we have to God, the intimacy we have with God. But not only intimacy do we have as his children, but we have special access. You know, we can go to him directly like Jesus did. We don't have to be afraid. You know, a couple weeks ago, um, uh, we were in corporate worship at City Life. Uh, and in the back of the room, as I was presiding and uh, walking us through the liturgy, I see a young boy, my son, just running down. Uh, we actually uh, don't have these three aisles. We have one middle aisle. And uh, I just see him at the back of the room just running, beelining towards me, yelling, Appa. Uh, and he has no idea what's going on around him. Uh, he doesn't care. Uh, and in that moment, um, uh, he has no fear. And he just runs up to me and, and, and jumps in my arms. And in that moment, I was terrified. Uh, I was thinking to myself, um, uh, sorry, I... Uh, I lost my notes, it's okay. In that moment, I was thinking to myself, uh, what do I do? We're in the middle of worship. This is a time of reverence. We're coming before God. 
I don't want to be a distraction to others. And uh, deep down, I felt the sense my sin is disrupting and distracting others from worship. Uh, But thankfully in that moment, uh, by God's grace, I was also to catch a glimpse of the special access that we have as his children uh, to run to God as his father. And thankfully, when we run to him, God doesn't respond like I did. There is no interrupting your father. There is no time where he's too preoccupied or too busy. But he stops what he's doing. He actually delights when we run to him, knowing that he's ready to receive us. Do you know that this morning, that this is the relationship that we have with God, that we can call him Abba Father? No other name uh, that others can call him by. And do you know him that, do you know that you have special access to him, that you can run to him? He stops everything that he's doing uh, to give us his heart and his attention. Uh, This is the the encouragement that John gives us this morning. uh, That this is the Father's love. That he clothes us with his honor. He gives us his time of day. We can run to him. Uh, So this morning, this week, what would it look like for you uh, to behold the Father's love? And what would it look like for each of us to point others to say, behold, look, and see the Father's love for you this morning? Would you pray with me? Uh, Gracious God, uh, this is a simple truth uh, that many of us are familiar with. uh, But every day we forget. We're so accustomed and attuned to uh, this voice of shame that reminds us that we are not enough, that we don't do enough. And part of that is true, God, that we are unworthy uh, to be called your sons and daughters. But we're so grateful for this truth uh, that it's not for what we have done that you call us your sons and daughters, but for what your son Jesus has done. And I pray that that truth would encourage us this morning uh, to fix our eyes, to lift up our eyes, up off our failures, our shame, our inadequacy, uh, to behold uh, your son uh, dying for us, to behold your love uh, giving of self to us. Uh, would you encourage us today? Help us to do the same with those in our eyes. We pray in your name. Amen.